Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhivkova. This candid conversation with Saeed Taji Faruqi, an award-winning filmmaker specializing in human rights projects and social justice, made me think of Andrei Tarkovsky's poetic essence of cinema. Today, we discuss I See the Stars at Noon and Tell Spring Not to Come this year, films directed by Saeed, how his work focuses on communicating underrepresented stories in the times of misrepresentation of the Arab world by the Western media. We talk about ethics in documentary filmmaking, information ownership, neocolonialism, and the role of a director in and outside the film. Hi, Said. Thank you so much for doing this conversation with me. Um, in your films, you address topics such as colonialism, refugee crisis, war in Afghanistan. Why have you chosen film as a medium to communicate these topics in the first place? How did it all start for you? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I, ca- I I started as a journalist, so <clears throat> I came at these topics from from a journalistic background, a more factual background. Um, and I think for me, documentary was just a, a really good way of combining my interest in journalism with my my activism at the time. Um, and, a, and a more growing sense of politics and my own politics and my own political identity. Um, so it was really, I, I don't actually remember making a conscious effort to go into documentary because I, 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 I came to film through fiction anyway. My, my love for film, my love for cinema was always about fiction films when I was younger. Um, and, and I've been watching and obsessed with and in love with cinema, you know, since I can remember and, and making my own films with my parents' cameras. So it, it's always been a huge part of my life. And I think, I think it was just a time when <clears throat> there was a lot going on and I was becoming politically more conscious and more aware. And I wanted to find a way of communicating that and investigating that. And so it ended up, you know, these three, these strands just sort of ended up uh, directing me towards documentary film and probably also logistically, because it's, it's generally, it's a bit easier to start making a documentary on your own. Usually, you know, the costs are lower, the, the barrier to entry in the industry is a bit lower. Um, and I think I just felt like I had at that time something to contribute to documentary film, a way of, of representing stories that that weren't being represented um so you know my 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 goal in the beginning if you could call it that was to to make films about the arab world and i had noticed at the time and still today i mean it's probably a little better today but you know there was a huge amount of misrepresentation of the arab world um and misunderstanding and people who weren't from the Arab world making films about the Arab world. So there was this very, you know, there was a very Orientalist foreign gaze that most documentaries were being, were being told from. And I was sick of that. And so I thought that was the the best way I could try and change it was to get involved and to tell the stories myself. Thank you, Said. Giving voice to the voiceless in one of your talks, you said you don't believe in that statement. Can you please tell me why? 
I'm curious, aren't you giving voice to your protagonists, such as soldiers of Afghanistan in the Tell Spring Not to Come this year, or the main character of the film I See the Stars at Noon? <clears throat> they already have a voice. That's uh, that's what bothers me about this phrase. Is it's a to me, it's a very paternalistic approach to think that we, as whoever we might be, foreigners or filmmakers or journalists, um, that we can give someone a voice. You know, they they have a voice. If it's not being heard, that's the fault of filmmakers and journalists and storytellers who are ignoring it or which is probably more common is those storytellers who aren't ignoring it but are still not giving the ownership of the story to the people in that story so you know we have a huge issue in the documentary world and in journalism about the ownership of stories and how we represent stories And we have a very long tradition, particularly in journalism, I would say, of thinking that because you're telling a story, it's yours. Or because you have information, somehow you're privileged. Or there was a great criticism of journalists by, I think, I think Robert Fisk, who, who just died recently, who's, um, I mean, he has his own issues with work as well. I, you know, I'm not. I'm not uncritical of him, but I think he was always very good at um, at criticizing mainstream journalism. And I think it's something he said, I can't entirely remember, but he said that journalists are people who think they're important because they find themselves in important situations. And I always found that incredibly prescient and true from my experience of being around, you know, other international journalists there's a sense that because people listen to your voice that you are the important part of the equation, but you're not the important part of the equation. In fact, the real skill of being a journalist or documentary filmmaker is to, at the, at the same time, direct the project, but also allow yourself to be absorbed into the story and fade into the background. So how do you do it so that you're working with people in those situations. You know, I'm not going somewhere to take somebody's story and then do something with it as though it was a resource because that's just neo-colonialism. And if I call myself an anti-colonialist, an anti-imperialist, I'm not going to reproduce the methods and the history of colonialism in order to say, well, what about these people's voices? We need to find different ways of processing stories. And that different way is to collaborate. That different way is to understand that those, the people that we're working with, the people whose stories we want to tell, are the ones in control. And I take my cues from them, and I take the direction from them, and I take story from them. Now, of course, I'm also directing the film, so I have a role in it. But that role is not more important than theirs. And for people who don't appreciate that approach, you know, there are a lot of documentary filmmakers who can't stand giving up control in that way. My uh, suggestion to them is that documentary film is not the right place for them because if you're not in it for that unpredictability, for the 
discipline of collaborating on a story, if you're not there to learn from the people that you're filming and telling a story about, you might as well just make fiction. And there's nothing wrong with that. I also make fiction and I love it. In fact, I probably watch more fiction films than I do documentary, even though I make documentary. But when I make documentary, I'm there because I want to creatively approach reality. I don't just want real people who fit in my narrative, who I can manipulate as though they were actors in a story. That's a really perverse way of seeing the world. Thank you, Said, for this insightful answer. Following your thoughts on storytelling or processing stories, as you say, can we talk about these two films and what they meant to you? And maybe let's start with I See the Stars at Noon. I think, the, I mean, I See the Stars at Noon was, was my first documentary. And it really absolutely changed my life. I mean, everything I'm, everything I'm telling you now the the origin of that approach comes from from that film you know i was a journalist at, in a in a simpler time i would say i mean i was sort of i was sort of around at at the maybe the height of the of popularity of, of postmodernism but it hadn't yet been completely absorbed by by the industry so there was a much more straightforward concept of what a journalist's job was and it was a lot less muddied by social media and manipulation. Um, so I began this film thinking I would make <clears throat> what I would have called an objective documentary uh, in quotes. And the film essentially is about a man trying to cross a, a Moroccan man trying to cross into Spain. And I want to tell the story of a man who was making this journey and really to understand why he was doing it. And, and this goes back to our, our sort of voice of the voiceless conversation, that I understood that most documentaries and most news was being told from the European perspective about undocumented migrants coming to Europe. Very few people were discussing, were looking at the story from the perspective of the migrants, and even less were, were listening to what the migrants had to say to really understand why they were doing this. So that's what I wanted to do. And I assumed it would be a traditional documentary, the kinds of documentary that I was watching, which is, you know, the filmmaker has no role. The filmmaker is invisible. We foreground the people in the film. And halfway through making the film, the, the man I was filming with, Abdel Fattah, he turns to the camera and says, well, what about me? You know, you're making this film. You're telling my story what happens to me after it's told. And so it began this very long and complex, difficult uh, conversation between him and I about why I'm there, what I'm doing there, what I'll get out of it. Am I exploiting him? Is he exploiting me? Uh, what's my responsibility to him? You know, as a, am I a friend? Am I a detached journalist? Um, he starts asking me for money to help pay for the boat that he wants to take. So I start to think, well, does that compromise the ethics of journalism? Uh, does that make me responsible if something happens to him on the boat? You know, very profound conversations about the nature of filmmaking and storytelling. And when I got back to London to edit, and I said to Gareth, who's the, 
editor with me. He's been editing almost all of my films and we have a very close working relationship like that. I said, you know, this is all the material. There's a lot of conversation about money and ethics and him talking to camera. <clears throat> I think we just have to cut all of that out and tell the story. And Gareth, to his credit, no noticed that that was, in fact, the most important part, or the most interesting part. So the film ends up sort of 50% of it unfolding like a normal documentary. And then Abdel Fattah starts talking to me, i.e. the camera, about the nature of documentary filmmaking. And it completely changed my perspective because I finally understood there was no objectivity. You know, it was always manufactured. And uh, we need to understand that and we need to appreciate it. But we can also manipulate that. We can play with it. Um, you know, we can use it to our advantage. It can become a creative part of the film. And I also understood the responsibility of a documentary filmmaker at that point to the people in their films. You know, that we, I really need to stress, and I do this all the time, that we're dealing with real people's lives. You know, these are not subjects. These are not characters. Um, and I really resent those terms when we use them for documentary film. And I resent the way we talk about them as though they are fictional characters that we need to manipulate to tell a story. Uh, they, they're, you know, they should be in charge. They're our guides. So it really opened my eyes to a lot of, a lot of the nuances of documentary film. And since then, I, I've just, uh, I would say, abandoned the idea of objectivity in, in a kind of modernist sense. Uh, I, I still think it's incredibly important to be rigorous and, and truthful and authentic about certain things, of course. But I would never claim that a journalist or a filmmaker can tell a story objectively. So really that, that film, that experience opened my eyes and, and changed the way I saw a film from then on. And since then I've always, in one way or another, sometimes very subtle, I've always referenced my presence there with the camera and sometimes played with it a lot more, but at least in one way or another, there's always a scene in a film where someone turns the camera and, and acknowledges me. And I think that's important. And how about making Tell Spring Not To Come This Year? It's a powerful, beautifully shot documentary that tracks the intense, grim lives of the Afghan National Army as they fight the Taliban alone after the U.S. departed. It received several awards and nominations, including uh, winning the Audience Award for the documentary film in Berlin in 2015. Yeah, I think for me, <clears throat> um, that was the first film where my aesthetic approach and this kind of philosophical approach I'm describing really came together. And, and, and the, I mean, it was, and the political approach, it was, a, it was the first time that I think all three of these considerations sort of worked and resonated at the same time. Um, because I, I mean, I work very slowly, you know, I don't, this is one reason why I, I quit, journalism because I, I'm just way too slow. I couldn't keep up with it. And the demands of it were, you know, were, were way too fast for me. Um, and I also think the speed of it was, was damaging. The speed of it is, is, isn't doing us any favors. So, you know, since the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, 
I've been trying to figure out how to tell a, a story about Afghanistan, how to tell a film, how to make a film in Afghanistan, and what it would be about. And and it was really only until 2013, 2012, um, when Mike approached me with the idea, and I finally realized, okay, this this is a way of telling a story from a different perspective, right? A story that's not that's not normally told, because I tend to wait. And by waiting, I see what other films are being made and how the information is being processed. And so what you find in any war is that 99% of the films being made and the journalism being told is from the perspective of, you know, the journalist's foreign gaze. So almost all the films are about American troops in Afghanistan, British troops in Afghanistan, whatever, Australian troops in Afghanistan. And those are also important stories, but what happens to the Afghans when that war is over? You know, and and the rhetoric that we keep hearing outside of Afghanistan is when the war is over, you know, when the hostility ends, when the NATO mission is over, it's not, it's not even, it's not even remotely over. If, if you, if you're, if you're still following news in Afghanistan, <clears throat> the situation is is worse now than it was when the NATO mission was still on, when the war, quote unquote, the war was still going. So we wanted to tell the story and to understand and to see what happens after foreign troops leave. What is the legacy of the war? What are the Afghan soldiers left with? Basically, what is the mess of these neo-colonial wars that 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 afghan soldiers are going to have to deal with and that's you know that's a story that's as old as uh, colonialism itself so it was a, it was the, the moment for me when my politics and aesthetics in film combined for the first time um but strangely enough, my work has changed a lot since then. And I don't know, I don't know that I'll make another film like that. Um, you know, I'm changing and the world is changing around me. And so my, the way I represent the world is also changing. But it, but it was, you know, um, it's very hard for me to say why I make films, why why I... You know, people always ask, is there, um, are, you, are you trying to change the world? Are you trying to change people's perception? Um, are you trying to change the narrative? Whatever it is. And and I'm not, you know, it's very hard to explain what really drives me. I don't like to approach a film with with a practical or political goal in mind. Because I got into film for the love of the art form. Um, I I am also, you know, an activist and a radical. So those are important aspects of the film. But I don't want to create it um, as a goal-oriented exercise. But having said that, when I hear people say things like, this changed my perception of Afghans, of course, it's a very powerful thing to hear, you know, and it's very satisfying. Um, And it just, for me, it's, it's, an honor to the people in the film because it helps me understand that they gave me an honesty and an authenticity 
that they allowed themselves to be in this film and allowed me to collaborate with them to tell their stories. And that means other people appreciate that and understood that and read that in the material. So, um, so it's not a goal, but it's a very satisfying, uh, you know, unintended consequence of the film. Thank you, Said. Um, can you also tell me uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, what do you think must be captured and explored further through your lens? Yeah, I'm, I'm working, well, I'm working a lot more on fiction now. And um, I've realized that my, my documentaries originally started for me as a way of, of reanalyzing the Arab world. But I've noticed that I've moved further and further away from the Arab world in my documentaries over time, but my fiction is bringing me back. And so my, so far my fiction has been much more explicitly about Palestine. And, um, and I think that's a good balance for me now. I, you know, I, I, I find it really hard to know what my documentaries can bring to the representation of Palestine right now. I really struggle with that. Um, but with fiction, I find it a lot, a lot easier. I, I don't know why. I think maybe it's just inundation, be, being inundated with news media. And so it's, it's, not, it's, it's not evocative for me. Um, but the fiction side is much more evocative. So I'm writing a fiction feature that takes place in Gaza. Um, but it's, you know, strangely weird and, and surreal in, in, in the same way that a lot of my work is. Um, and I'm making a documentary about, uh, about oil. You know, it's about a, f a family that lives and works in an oil field. And um, so, on, you know, on one level, it's really just about a family uh, growing up together, the son going through adolescence and trying to decide what to do with his life. But through, through the process of digging for oil and integrating the family's Buddhism into the film. So, you know, their ideas of, of life and death and rebirth, their ideas of life cycles and reincarnation. Those have been integrated into the story and into the aesthetics of the film. And so it, it's very much what I was describing earlier, that, um, that collaboration, you know, wor working with people and, and absorbing their point of view and their personalities into the film rather than resisting it, rather than saying, this is my story and I'm going to tell it the way I want to tell it. I, in fact, understand how they see the world and, and try and integrate those uh, techniques into the film. Because there's also something very interesting uh, right now for me about challenging conventional story structure. You know, I don't, I have no connection uh, historically or emotionally or culturally to uh, ancient Greek drama. You know, I never learned it. I didn't grow up watching it. I've read any of those texts. Um, so why should uh, the poetics of, of Aristotle be my foundational document for storytelling? It, it makes no sense to me. Um, we have, I mean, you, you're Persian, part Persian, um, and, uh, you know, Persian culture has some of the oldest stories in the world. Um, some of our oldest recorded um, narratives 
And some of our most imaginative story structures are from the Persian literary world. And we adopted a lot of them, Arab storytellers. So, you know, it makes no sense to me uh, to have 6,000 years of, of rich culture uh, and continually go back to the same three-act structure of, um, you know, of point, counterpoint, and climax. Um, it, it's so rigid and dictatorial that I, I'm surprised more people aren't put off by it. Um, but aside from, you know, I'm not just trying to contradict it because I think I'm a rebel. It, it really doesn't resonate with me, you know. Um, so I, I'm looking to things like music, you know, Arabic music has incredible structures that for me have almost no resemblance to um, European classical music uh, and almost no resemblance to, to a three act structure. Um, they're about patience and restraint uh, and elongating sounds to be, you know, minutes long. And uh, someone like Um Kalthum who, who takes a word and repeats it for an hour, you know, and that's, that's one movement of a song. And you see how the audience is enraptured by it and um, the audience communicates with her, their passion, and she communicates it back. And she's almost like a puppet master that, that she can bring the audience into a frenzy and then release it and then uh, increase that anticipation again. And um, that to me is an exciting way of telling a story. You know, that's a very alive way um, that's a lot less rigid, a lot more, um, a lot more creative, a lot more surprising. Um, and, and looking a lot at Sufi music now. So like Khawali from, from Pakistan and India, like Mugam from, from Azerbaijan. And we were talking about Alim Khazimov, <clears throat> you know, people who, live their their work they live their art their art is a manifestation of their own their own perception of the world and that's always what i really aspire to in cinema it's nothing um practical you know i don't i don't have a structural goal in mind for my films really what i want to do what i desire more than anything is to make a film that truly represents the way I see the world. And if that means it's surreal, then that surrealism is an essential part of the story. I, you know, I don't make surreal fragmented films because it's a technique that I think is exciting in cinema. I make surreal fragmented films because that's how I see the world. That's my way of storytelling. And it's my way of representing a particular vision of the world and a way of representing a different causality that's not linear, that may not be deterministic, that's a mixture of God and fact and love and war and all of these things combined in a very complex, messy way. And that's what the Sufi musicians for me are doing is they're combining these really lofty ideals uh, of their relationship with God and the soul with these very practical, you know, the body, the sounds, 
the, the, the percussive nature of their voices, um, the repetition of a drum beat or a single sound. So we are somehow struggling to represent the divine in a, a very mundane, practical way. And, and that's what I feel we're doing with cinema. You know, it's a, it's a unique art form in the sense that we can imagine almost anything, but ultimately we need to film something real, right? You don't need to do that in painting. You don't need to do that in literature or music. But in cinema, unless you're doing purely animation, we need a very boring, practical, mundane solution to our ideas meaning there has to be a person, a human being acting in front of the camera and the camera records it and we then manipulate it. So that dance between the very practical uh, corporeal um, challenges of working with other human beings and in a real space and somehow reflecting our ideas of the divine challenges that's what's exciting to me. Going back to activism, you once noted we are facing a global crisis of widespread unverified information, specifically in cross-cultural media. Today with me, you mentioned misrepresentation, misunderstanding of the Arab world, Orientalist, foreign gaze. Do you think cultural practitioners, such as filmmakers, to a certain degree carry a, a social responsibility to foster meaningful conversations and make positive change? I think, I think we need to understand how influential culture is. You know, there's, there is a huge amount of scrutiny now over culture. And um, of course, sometimes it's over the top. You know, um, I, I'm not going to say that every uh, i i support every analysis um or every uh evisceration of a celebrity that said or did the wrong thing online i mean generally i think the fact that people can be held to account now by people who previously had no power is a great thing and i support it and i think it's an amazing movement and i feel like i'm a part of it and it's incredibly empowering but um everything that's produced now is under incredible scrutiny and there is a tendency i think because people are overwhelmed by that to say that it's only culture it's only a film or it's only music or it's only a tv show first of all we're ignoring how precious those cultural artifacts are to us you know I'm a filmmaker and I'm obsessed with cinema and it means everything to me. It's my life. It, you know, film probably saved my life. I don't think that's, that's a, an exaggeration to say. And uh, it, for me, it reflects the way I see the world. It's incredibly important to me and it's a weapon. You know, I see film as a way of um, challenging colonialism and imperialism in the world. It's a way of challenging fascism. Uh, it's a way of, of building a more just uh, and equitable world. So we're ignoring that when we say it's only a film or it's only TV or it's only music. 
we also just ignore the basic power of culture. I mean, cinema is not only an enormous industry internationally, but it's incredibly influential in the way that we see the world, the way that we perceive ourselves, the way we perceive hierarchies and structures of power. I mean, um, you, you know, I guarantee the majority of people in most countries, their perception of their own country's history is based on cinema. You know, in the UK, where I live, for sure, we are still obsessively uh, connected to the cinema of, of World War II and our films about World War II in the national perception of itself. I would argue too much. But regardless, uh, cinema is incredibly influential, and, and not only cinema, music and literature, in the way that countries, uh, people perceive themselves and perceive their nations and perceive their roles in, the, in their nations. So I think at the same time, we have to balance, we have to think, we have to understand how much influence our work can have. And we also have to not forget that it's also supposed to be beautiful and fun and fulfilling. And that's also why I don't set out with the goal of, say, changing or making the world better or being a positive social change. Because I don't watch films for that reason. So I don't want to make films for that reason. I watch films because of the beauty or the pain. In fact, I watch films because um, it's, it's like, there's a beautiful quote from James Baldwin where he says that he thought he was the only one who suffered until he started reading. And it seems like a very dark way of approaching culture. But for me, it's also true, understanding how other people suffer. And the first film I ever saw, or the first film I remember seeing as a kid that had a really profound effect on me, was Papillon, a film, a Steve McQueen film. And the reason it had a profound effect on me was for exactly that reason that James Baldwin expressed. I saw in those characters, although their lives had absolutely nothing to do with mine, the same suffering, the same challenges, the same contradictions. And I understood that there were other people going through things like that. And bizarrely, by sharing that pain, it made me feel better because I realized I wasn't alone. That's why I watch films. So I make films for the same reason. I don't have a practical goal in mind, but I have a very distinct sense of how I want people to feel when they watch those films. Now, I hope the outcome is it can contribute to, like I said, a world, a more just world. But I don't approach it with that goal. Maybe uh, that's just my own uh, romantic idealism. But I, <laughs> I just want to make the best film possible. You mentioned Steve McQueen, the actor, and it made me think of Steve, Steve McQueen, the filmmaker, uh, whose work I simply admire. Would you share with me whose filmmaking inspires you, um, whose work you love? The director, Steve McQueen, who I think is a phenomenal artist, yeah. exactly. made what for me was probably one of the most influential films I've ever seen, Hunger, his first, his first feature film. And um, it was one of the best examples I've ever seen of this confluence of politics and art. And in, in the way that uh, Godard describes or 
makes the distinction between making political films and making films politically. And his goal, as is my goal, was always to make films politically. And I think that's what Steve McQueen did with Hunger. And when I saw that film, I think I finally understood that that could be done, you know, in a, in a contemporary context. I, I don't, it's very rare that I attach to an artist and, and appreciate everything they do over time. In fact, I tend to get the opposite feeling, which is that most, most artists sooner or later will disappoint me. <laughs> I feel like, you know, but, but I think it's also because I allow myself to have such profound reactions to work. But there are some, I mean, the film I'm making now, I've been watching a lot of, um, a lot of East Asian cinema. And uh, so someone who until now has not disappointed me, who I think is just an incredible artist from beginning to end is, is Simon Lang, um, who just makes incredible, very slow, patient, beautiful films um, that are so, so about, on the one hand, humanism, and on the other hand, a kind of a, a spirituality. Um, I, I feel the same about Apichat Pong, Weir Sathakur, the, the Thai director, who's just, you know, they're also filmmakers who I appreciate their vision because they make films the way, you know, like I was describing earlier, they make films the way they see the world and they don't feel the need to compromise. Um, and I find that beautiful. I find that incredibly inspiring. But I do also like their films. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not just attracted to them because they're contrarians. Um, so those two, for me, I would say, are probably the biggest influences in the sense that I don't want to make films like them, but I want people to have the same reactions to my films that I have when I watch those films which is this, you know, I want to be in completely absorbed by them. And I want people to feel that that is an authentic representation of the way I see the world. Said, you said cinema changed your life. And I just, I simply cannot ignore that statement. In literally just a few words, and I promise this is my very last question for you. In just a couple of words, tell me, please, what is your relationship with camera? I've always believed the camera is a weapon and, uh, and that has two meanings for me. One is that it can be used to destroy systems of oppression, but the other is it can be, it can be defensive. So cinema for me is both, you know, the camera for me is a way of protecting myself, uh, of understanding myself and my relationship to the world better. And it's a way of, breaking down systems of oppression. Um, so I hide behind it sometimes when I need to, but I can also wield it like a crowbar when I need to. Thank you so much, Said, for this beautiful answer and for the inspiring conversation. I cannot wait to share it with our team and the listeners. And good luck uh, to you with the upcoming projects. <laughs>